0: My name is Amina Malik and I'm an oculoplastic surgeon at Houston Methodist Hospital. And I'm going to be talking about thyroid eye disease with an emphasis on diagnosis. So how do we make the diagnosis of thyroid eye disease? Well, it really is a combination of three different things. Looking at A, the clinical examination, including the signs and symptoms, B, labs. So we check the thyroid levels and antibodies, and then imaging can also play a role in helping us make the diagnosis, which we'll talk about a little bit more in detail later during this talk. So let's start with the clinical signs. What things do we need to be looking for on examination with our patients that suggest that they might have a diagnosis of thyroid eye disease? Well the most common sign in thyroid eye disease is lid retraction. This is seen in 90% of patients. So what is lid retraction? Well we know normally the lid should cover one to two millimeters of the colored part of the eye. But in patients with thyroid eye disease, we can often see the superior sclera or the white part of the eye. And this is due to both a sympathetic overdrive that these patients might be having from their underlying hyperthyroidism, as well as some of the changes occurring in the muscles. So here are examples where you can see the white of the eye superiorly, uh, suggesting that these patients have thyroid eye disease. Patients with thyroid eye disease often will also present with exophthalmos, and this is the second most common sign seen in about 70% of patients. And this is where the eye is bulging out of the socket. This is a worm's eye view, where you can see clearly that the right eye is bulging further out of the socket, um, suggestive of thyroid eye disease. So how do we measure for proptosis as clinicians? Well, we use this device pictured here called a Hertel exophthalmometer, and this really provides a quantitative measure of proptosis. So this is a device that rests on the lateral orbital rim, and it has two red lines that we align and then ask the patient to look at uh, one eye at a time to measure how far out of the socket it's projecting. And this gives us, again, a quantitative measurement of how far it's protruding past the orbital rim. Now, the average measurement can vary between races. The average measurement for Caucasians is 19 to 21. African-Americans tend to have shallower orbits though, so their measurements are 21 to 23, and while Asian eyes tend to have deeper set eyes, so can have lower Hertel measurements. But aside from the absolute number, it's also important to check for any difference between the two eyes. Humans can be made with natural asymmetry of up to two millimeters uh, between the two eyes of where they're sitting in the socket, but anything greater than two millimeters really should alert us for the presence of another etiology uh, causing that difference. In addition to the lid retraction in the exophthalmos, restrictive myopathy can also be seen in about 42% of patients. And this is due to involvement and enlargement of the extraocular muscles behind the eye, as we can see on this histopathologic slide uh, with fibrosis uh, in the extraocular muscles. And on the bottom picture, you can see the significant enlargement of the extraocular muscles uh, in this gross specimen of a patient with thyroid eye disease. And this can lead to double vision, which is very disabling for patients. Luckily, the most severe sign of optic neuropathy, optic nerve dysfunction is the least common, occurring in about 6% of patients. Now this can happen due to the enlargement of the tissues behind the eye which can then lead to direct compression on the optic nerve. The eye sits in a closed bony socket, the orbit, so when you have all of the enlargement of the tissues going on behind the eye, that can lead to damage to the optic nerve with subsequent vision loss. And this is an emergency because it can cause permanent blindness if left untreated. You can also see optic nerve dysfunction from stretch optic neuropathy, where the eye is so far out beyond the, beyond the socket that it's causing the the globe to uh, tent and beyond stretch, which can lead to subsequent vision loss. As you can see in the clinical photograph of a patient who did present with bilateral optic neuropathy due to her severe thyroid eye disease. Now, what about the symptoms? What things are we going to hear from our patients who have thyroid eye disease? Well, Up to 50% of patients with Graves' disease will report some sort of ocular symptoms during the course of their disease. So it's important to be familiar with what these are. Commonly, it can include dryness or a foreign body sensation in the eyes. As you can see uh, in the picture on the top, uh, extensive fluorescein staining on the cornea, uh, showing us significant corneal dryness. Uh, These patients can also complain of light sensitivity or photophobia tearing, double vision due to the muscle enlargement, redness due to the ongoing inflammation and swelling around the eyes, and often they can complain of a pressure, pain, or an ache, a throb, or even just an awareness of their eyes. Now we saw some more dramatic examples of thyroid eye disease, but sometimes the presentation can be more subtle um, as in this patient who you might think just has some extra left upper eyelid skin, but on closer examination actually had uh, about three millimeters of relative proptosis on that left side um, and did have uh, thyroid eye disease. So important to be aware of some of the more subtle presentations that these patients can have. Now, orbital imaging is also helpful in our diagnosis of thyroid eye disease. So what do we look for on imaging? We want to check the volume of the extraocular muscles because we know that thyroid eye disease leads to enlargement of the muscles, um, and the enlargement that we see in thyroid eye disease spares the tendons, so we're really looking at the muscle bellies, and the most commonly involved muscles are going to be the inferior rectus and the medial rectus. We also look at the volume of orbital fat because thyroid eye disease can cause enlargement and expansion of orbital fat, Uh, so important to check for this. Imaging also has a role for preoperative planning prior to orbital decompression, which is surgery where we're removing bone and fat behind the eye uh, when we're treating our patients with thyroid eye disease, so the the CT can be really useful in assessing for bony thickness, any adjacent sinus disease, um, again to help with the surgical planning. And it can also help in evaluating for optic neuropathy uh, when cases, uh, patients who are complaining of vision loss, uh, we can often assess for some of that direct compression of the optic nerve or or the significant stretch uh, optic neuropathy, uh, which can be seen on imaging. Okay. So let's look at a real world example with a case study. So this is a 72 year old white male who had a six month history of progressive pain, redness, horizontal diplopia, bulging, and tearing of his eyes. He did have a past medical history of Graves' disease, which had been managed medically on methimazole. Recently, his thyroid levels were slightly elevated. His vision was 20-20 in both eyes. His pressure was 21 in the right eye, slightly elevated at 23 in the left eye. His pupillary exam was normal without evidence of relative afferent pupillary deficit. He had full visual fields. He did have limited extraocular motility in the left eye uh, contributing to the double vision that he was experiencing and his Hertel examination, uh, disclosed measurements of 22 in the right eye, 24 in the left eye. So slightly more proptotic on that left side. So here we have this patient who has thyroid eye disease. He is complaining of pain, redness, double vision, swelling. Um, so, you know, what's our next step when we have this patient in our office? Well, first, let's make the diagnosis. We know that thyroid eye disease is the number one cause of unilateral or bilateral proptosis, but there are other things that can also cause proptosis or bulging that we want to always remember. This can include orbital tumor, orbital venous malformations, carotid cavernous fistulas, orbital cellulitis, or inflammation. Uh, So while it is the most common cause, there are also other things that we need to be aware of um, that can present with proptosis. Now our patient clearly had more moderate to severe TED, where we can see more of the redness, the proptosis, and the swelling. Um, so let's talk about what the management would be for patients with moderate or severe thyroid disease. So steroids can be given, and typically IV steroids are more effective than oral based on studies. Um, there are side effects that need to be considered when we're prescribing patient steroids studies have shown a significant decrease in the clinical activity score with use of IV steroids, but not as much of an improvement as seen in patients' ocular motility, double vision, or proptosis. Now, steroid sparing immunosuppressants can also be used um, along with the steroids, and this can decrease the amount needed. And this has shown superior outcomes than steroids alone. Um, but this has not shown to have significant effects on proptosis and or double vision. Now, orbital radiation in combination with steroids can be particularly useful for ocular motility problems and double vision, but not proptosis, and studies have really shown mixed efficacy. Now, there are several biologics available for patients with moderate or severe active TED, and this includes rituximab, tocilizumab, and tepratubumab, but these, um, the rituximab and tocilizumab are off-label, whereas tepratubumab is an on-label agent. So rituximab is a monoclonal antibody that targets CD20, and this is given via two infusions, uh, thousand milligrams every two weeks. And there were randomized clinical trials done comparing rituximab to placebo, and there was really no benefit seen. Um, there were also studies looking at rituximab versus IV methylprednisolone that did show a reduction in the CAS, no disease recurrence, and a reduced need for surgery, uh, but they had different pa- uh, patient populations. But overall, with the rituximab, there was no significant difference in the proptosis, double vision, or quality of life. Now, tocilizumab is a monoclonal antibody targeted against the interleukin-6 receptor. And this, we have data based off of a randomized clinical trial out of Spain. And in this study, improvement of proptosis in a CAS score of less than three was not significant at 40 weeks follow-up. So um, no significant long-term improvement in proptosis, double vision, or quality of life um, shown here. Now, tepratubumab is the first and only FDA approved treatment for patients with TED. And this targets insulin-like growth factor one receptor, and it blocks its activation signaling. And the efficacy endpoints from their phase two and phase three trials uh, showed that there were 82.9% of patients that were proptosis responders versus 9.5% of the placebo. And 69.7% of patients who were treated with this were diplopia responders. And 78% were overall both proptosis and clinical activities for responders. So this study showed significant improvement in the quality of life measures as well, including vision and appearance. Now, our patient clearly had the um, classic signs of thyroid eye disease with the history of Graves' disease, uh, the proptosis, the swelling, the redness, double vision. So he was treated with eight infusions of tepertubumab. And you can see his really remarkable improvement um, uh, on the far right photo, where he had a two and four millimeter reduction in his hotels, uh, significant improvement in the redness and the swelling, and he was doing quite well, very happy after his treatment. Now, in addition to the tepratubumab, it's also important that we are uh, making sure our patients have systemic control of their thyroid disease. So he had uh, elevation of his thyroid levels, and this is where co-management is really crucial with endocrinology or endocrine surgery to optimize a euthyroid state for our patients. He did end up undergoing thyroidectomy to help with his systemic control two months post-teprotubumab, and he was doing well with stable levels at two-year follow-up after his treatment. So again, the treatment of thyroid eye disease uh, is really a multidisciplinary approach with several different specialties involved, including endocrinology, where the goal is really gonna be systemic thyroid control to help making the diagnosis of thyroid eye disease, as well as monitoring for some of the adverse effects of some of the medications uh, our patients will be treated with now of course ophthalmology lies at the center uh, as the eye specialists um, and this can include orbit specialists uh, strabismus neuro-ophthalmology but rheumatology is also very important to help in selecting the appropriate immunomodulatory therapy um, and can often help with the prescribing of these medications and monitoring Otolaryngology, uh, also very important. We often use audiology for pre-tepretubumab assessments for any hearing loss, um, and we often will repeat these audiology exams during and after treatment. So very important to have a good relationship with our audiology colleagues, as well as our sinus surgeons for minimally invasive orbital decompression. Radiation oncology, is also involved in the treatment of thyroid eye disease for patients who are refractory to other therapies or not surgical candidates who might benefit from treatment with orbital radiation. So as you can see, thyroid disease and thyroid eye disease are separate unique autoimmune diseases that really require distinct treatments, but a cohesive multidisciplinary team to optimize our patient's treatment. Now, again, why does multidisciplinary approach matter? Well, it can help with the early recognition and intervention of thyroid eye disease. Um, And when you have that relationship existing between endocrinologists and ophthalmologists, it helps get patients into offices quicker, um, get them diagnosed sooner, help them get treatment earlier and decrease their disease burden. It can also optimize ability to manage side effects from the medication and to help monitor the quality of life and the significant psychosocial impacts that thyroid eye disease can have on our patients. And so here's a five-step approach to really reduce morbidity associated with TED and improving our patient's quality of life. So first, it's the diagnosis uh, of Graves' disease and diagnosing that accurately. Um, Also screening all of these patients with Graves' disease for thyroid eye disease at every visit, asking the questions and looking for those signs. Third is alerting the patients with Graves' disease about the risk and being aware of it, and then preventing thyroid eye disease development or progression. Um, And that's really where we want to be uh, referring them for smoking cessation, um, making sure we're achieving euthyroid levels, avoiding radioactive iodine and active disease, and considering treatment with selenium for mild thyroid eye disease. And again, to refer to a specialist clinic early to identify the disease sooner to then get them treated and uh, prevent some of these um, long-term complications these patients can develop with thyroid eye disease. Thank you.